0: To the Explaining History podcast. Now, uh, probably going back a couple of years now, um, I did a podcast on the beginnings of the uh, Communist Party of Great Britain in 1920 and the involvement of the Soviet Union, well, the involvement of the the Bolsheviks uh, in its creation um, and the involvement of uh, Soviet funding uh, in the establishment. Of um, the Communist Party, Um today, uh, after a long, long wait, uh, I'm returning to the topic, and looking at um, how Lenin conceived of of shaping the Communist Party of Great Britain. I'm looking at um, Francis Beckett's really excellent history uh, of the Communist Party, um, "The Enemy Within," and Francis Beckett. Um, writes really, really eloquently um, about uh, Lenin's involvement. Um, he writes Lenin wanted the Communist Party of Great Britain to run his way. To achieve this, the Comintern brought together the two men who came to dominate the party for most of its life Harry Pollitt and Rajani Palm Dutt. Comintern instructions for Communist parties drawn up in 1921, demanded democratic centralism. Parties must be run from the centre. Party leaders must be able to take decisions which bind all members. So communist parties must have iron discipline and all common turn decisions must be binding on all communist parties. A three-man commission was set up to translate this into practice for Britain. In addition to Pollitt and Dutt, There were Harry Inkpin, the brother of party secretary Albert Inkpin, but he also seems to have little influence. So the term democratic centralism needs to be kind of drilled down into, and it was a a device uh, uh, created by Lenin during the Russian Civil War, um, which gave Lenin uh, ever greater levels of dictatorial control over the Bolshevik Party or the the Communist Party uh, as it became. Um, During the Russian Revolution, obviously there were waves of democratisation during 1917, the creation of Soviets, uh, of workplace committees in army regiments and in factories, um, which were represented by uh, the Petrograd Soviet then above that the All-Russian Federation of Soviets. Um, And the brief kind of window of democratisation didn't last in in the conditions of the Russian Civil War. Firstly, for levels of practicality, you simply cannot have factory committees deciding what needs to be uh, produced and what their working conditions uh, when the white armies are marching on, uh, on Moscow. Secondly... Um, it was always Lenin's intention to extend personal control over the party and therefore over the levers of state in the manner in, in which he did. Democratic centralism uh, really meant um, autocratic decision-making. In practice, democratic centralism worked uh, when the Politburo would uh, vote um, in majority terms, are on a particular issue, so perhaps 60% in in favour of uh, something, what that would result in would be the closing down of debate on the subject. So if the Politburo voted 60% in favour of, say, the new economic policy, then the decision was taken and it was binding and all party members were meant to follow it. Anything other than that would be considered factionalism. So um, as you get in all uh, democratic parties, there are debates that never quite go to bed. There are, um, within democratic parties, such as the uh, Labour Party in Great Britain or uh, perhaps uh, slightly less democratic parties, such as the Republican Party or the Conservative Party, um there are you know factions and schisms and splits and things that are never quite resolved um the the leninist way of looking at this uh, increasingly in 1921 was that um factionalism should be banned uh, the idea of what factionalism was was you know um uh, people discussing different policy issues perhaps on their own perhaps in each other's Offices or apartments, um, and uh, having uh, different views away from Lenin. Lenin, increasingly paranoid, perhaps as the result of his various strokes, saw this um, by nineteen twenty one as grounds for removal from the party. Um, in his book in nineteen oh two, What Is to Be Done? He he laid out the kind of the rough ideas of democratic centralism and said. Essentially, you need this kind of decision-making structure in a revolutionary party. Otherwise, it becomes a, just a talking shop where nothing happens. It becomes a bland committee um, and it's easily infiltrated by the secret police. Um, and so you can wind up with all sorts of kind of saboteurs and troublemakers um, uh, bringing endless debate and uh, or injecting contrary opinions into the party. So you need some uh, kind of uh, rather ruthless sort of determination uh, in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, the way in which um, democratic centralism worked in uh, foreign uh, communist parties was that um, ideas and edicts and policies uh, and intellectual positions um, came from Moscow. Um, parties must be moved from the centre, and party leaders surely must need, ma- needed to um, make uh, decisions and have iron discipline. Uh, but Comintern decisions, Comintern decisions decided in Moscow were binding on all communist parties. So it was a way, uh, democratic centralism was a way of making a communist party in Spain, in Italy, in France, Britain, Germany, or America, um, uh, a localized outpost of uh, Leninist doctrine in Moscow. It was uh, the Communist Party would be the uh, the overt, um, uh, the the kind of the surface level agent of um, uh, Moscow uh, uh, Moscow's policies in a foreign country. Whereas uh, espionage, Ill- illegal espionage, run uh, from uh, the embassy, uh, would later become the the kind of the hidden below the surface aspect of uh, Comintern activity. So a little on Harry Pollitt. Harry Pollitt was born in eighteen ninety in uh, Ashton and the Lyme, um, in Royalston. In point of fact, it's a, a northern. Um, industrial town in the kind of the cotton country of um, the textiles country of, of, of Greater Man- now Greater Manchester um, the son of uh, a working class family his mother, uh, like many uh, working class women at the time uh, had lost many children uh, in uh, infancy um, through kind of poverty uh, and, and exhaustion and uh, she, she, he wrote in his memoirs that uh, she had, kind of, left for work at four thirty a.m. Uh, every day, uh, and lived in, uh, and the family grew up in in penury. Um, so the, the the kind of biography um, that one would one uh, one would expect from the the kind of the uh, the working class communist uh, left the, the those who had really experienced the the hardships. and and sufferings of of industrial life. His mother had been one of the founder members of the uh, Independent Labour Party uh, and had also joined the Communist Party when it was founded in 1920. Francis Beckett writes, When he was 27, in November 1917, he read about the event which shaped the rest of his life. The Russian Revolution brought the Bolsheviks to power and politics saw that workers like me and all those around me had won power, had defeated the boss class. By then, he was a skilled craftsman, a boilermaker, an experienced strike leader, a member of Sylvia Pankhurst's Workers' Socialist Federation, an effective public speaker and the proud owner of a copy of Marx's Capital, given to him by his mother on his 21st birthday. Sylvia Pankhurst brought money from Moscow's hands-off Russia campaign, instigated and funded by Lenin and involving most of the future leaders of Britain's Communist Party. Pollock became its full-time organiser, but became restless in a desk job uh, and went back to work in the Port of London. There he helped persuade dockers to refuse to fill the SS Jolly George with coal because the ship was loaded with munitions intended to help Poland fight Russia. The Jolly George incident is a really kind of telling part of Britain's experience at the height of the Russian Revolution. The Jolly George, as it says there, was a munitions ship on the way to Poland. And when dock workers decided that they were unwilling to load it, and unwilling to uh, send munitions to Poland Uh, in 1920, which uh, happened to be the year that the the Poles crushed the Red Army at the the gates of Warsaw. It gave um, further kind of... uh, uh, cause to the suspicions of the of Britain's ruling classes that uh, a, a revolution was uh, potentially afoot uh, in, in Great Britain. Um, the decision not to invite uh, the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, uh, to live in exile uh, in Britain uh, by George V which um, was partly responsible for the later execution of the Tsar uh, in 1918 Um, was seen as, uh, by this point, quite an an astute move um, as uh, it was feared that there would be um, a a possible um, revolution in Britain in favour of of the workers' state in uh, the Soviet Union uh, or in in revolutionary Russia anyway, as as it would have been known. um, I, I don't believe for a moment that there was a an organised, radicalised and revolutionary workers' movement in Britain uh, between 1918 and 1920. Um, there were some workers who were persuaded to strike. There were incidents like the raising of the red flag over George Square in uh, Glasgow, uh, but by and large, these were localised. Uh, isolated incidents, and the the communist movement um, or the socialist movement in in Britain was no way near strong enough and established enough and the uh, the, two, the countries where there had been revolutions, a democratic revolution in uh, the Kaisers Germany in nineteen eighteen and obviously the two revolutions in this, in Russia in one thousand nine hundred and seventeen these are countries that had effectively lost wars. Um, they had uh, dealt with uh, the calamities uh, and disasters on a far greater magnitude than Great Britain had during the First World War. Their the societies had not been, or Britain, the British society had not been sufficiently smashed open in order for there to. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash To ...be those kinds of revolutionary tensions. It's not to suggest that Britain, um, between 1918 and 1920, had a harmonious society, not one bit of it. It was a society stricken with uh, economic and social crisis and conflict, but nothing on the scale that would have been required, really, to overthrow the British state. In 1921, Harry Pollitt went to Moscow for the first time and met Lenin. Um, He was paid to go by the Red International of Labour Unions, um, of which um, he was part of the British Bureau of. Um, And the uh, time that he shook Lenin's hand um, and met Lenin face to face... Um, was kind of indelibly printed upon him for, for the rest of his life he said this was a handshake that meant everything in the world to me um, he was a delegate at the Labour Party conference as a member of the Boilermakers Union that year uh, and there were some curious um, tensions between the Labour Party and the Communist Party of Great Britain during the 1920s uh, and 1930s to the the labor party the the communist party uh, was um, a a, a organization um, the labor party uh, boycotted support for the hunger marches of the 1930s partly because um, the uh, late, the communist party was involved in in their organization it vice versa The Communist Party looked upon uh, the Labour Party as being worse than the Conservatives, worse than the Liberals, uh, because the point of the Labour Party in the eyes of the Communist Party was to stave off revolution. They saw it as a counter-revolutionary organisation. It was there to uh, make a gradual and piecemeal change in the lives of the working classes to prevent the necessity for revolution. And so were uh, it was a kind of like a part, part of the system, one of the kind of the more insidious and clever parts of the system. Um, to some extent, there's perhaps some justification in that point of view. Uh, but I, I, I doubt very much whether it is even as conspiratorial as that. Um, at the conference, uh, Harry Pollitt said... That the um, he described the Communist Party as an ing- an integral part of the English working class movement. And when you imagine that nearly everything that Marx wrote was written in uh Great Britain at, in the British Library, and that Marx drew from um the the um the cooperative movement, um, he um, uh, socialists like uh Robert Owen. Um, he drew from uh, previous um, revolutionary traditions of the early 19th century the kind of the blanketeers and the um, uh, the Luddites and all, all these sorts of uh, people who, the, who um, protested uh, against the iniquities and and the um, and the poverty of the era um, and Marx even looked back at the the diggers and the chartists the, the Chartists and before that the um, the diggers uh, and the levelers and believed that he could see uh, a kind of a revolutionary tradition in the, in England so Marx and uh, English socialism have a long and complex uh, relationship with one another so what Pollock was saying wasn't entirely untrue um, And he said that labouring government will not depend on the Fabian society for their power. They will depend on the men in the mine, the mill and the shipyard. That's where the bulk of the Communist Party happens to be. By that he meant that the the Fabian society were the progressive socialists, or um, perhaps many of them didn't even consider themselves to be socialists, But the kind of progressive figures are are on the left, who um, were largely middle class, largely intellectual, um, the likes of Beatrice Webb and George Bernard Shaw, um, who um, viewed... Uh, a progressive move towards um, gradually uh, a gradually more civilized version of capitalism as being the the end goal uh, of the Labour Party. Even though one of the chief members of the Fabian Society, Sydney Webb, drew up the Labour Party constitution and drew uh, an added clause four to it, which is uh, essentially uh, about the uh, the common ownership of the means of production, though a kind of a heavily watered-down version of that. Um, and so P- um, Pollitt was saying, basically, that the Communist Party happened to be heavily embedded in working-class organisations, heavily embedded in uh, the mines and the shipyards and, and those sorts of places, and that's where the Labour Party would traditionally look for its support. Um how much that was realistic um it, it would remain to be seen. The other person to talk about is of course is, uh, is palm Dutt um Palm Dutt was um a the, father, the the son of an Indian doctor um and a Swedish writer who grown up in uh the eighteen nineties and the nineteen hundreds in a relatively impoverished circumstances in Cambridge. Uh, In 1916, uh, under the age of uh, 20, he insisted on his right to go to prison uh, and refused the draft. Um, He appealed, and his appeal was successful, and he was uh, conscripted, but refused again and spent six months in prison. Um, This uh, was a very difficult time for him. It broke his health um and he i think as uh, a a non-white british man refusing to fight for king and country had an exceptionally tough time at the hands of the prison guards he was expelled from uh, oxford university where he studied for organizing a meeting in support of the um uh, the russian revolution this was after he was uh, was freed in, in 1917 Um, But he came back in, took his finals and got a first-class degree. Um, He was uh, a passionate communist um, and uh, Francis Beckett writes. He explained why 50 years later um, he had been uh, so devout in his uh, communist views um, by recalling an international student meeting that he attended in Geneva with uh, the communist uh, Ellen Wilkinson. Um, who would soon leave to join the Labour Party and became uh, cabinet minister in the 1945 Labour government. He said, as so often in international conference, there arose an English problem. In this case, whether to accept as uh, in the proposed international organisation of socialist students or not. Accordingly, uh, that night a fraction met. Um, a, fraction, a fraction meeting was called of the communist representatives to decide what to do with the English. We were allowed to be present as silent spectators. The discussion was held in an attic and continued into the small hours. At one point, the police arrived in the house. We adjourned through the attic window into a neighbouring attic and the discussion continued. Our organisation and line was analysed relentlessly, like a body being dissected on the mortuary slab. At the end, the decision went against us. As we came away in the cold hour of the December night, Ellen Wilkinson said to me, this is ghastly, callous, inhuman, Uh, this is the most ghastly, callous, inhuman machine I've ever witnessed. I said to her, at last I have found what I've been looking for, socialists who mean business. So there's a fascinating little anecdote about um, the admiration that Dutt had for the kind of um, uh, ruthlessly deterministic bureaucratism that um, Leninism would would, would entail, um, and even though the decision had gone against admitting uh, the English, um, there was uh, it was the kind of the the um, the steeliness of it that he saw as being particularly uh, attractive. Um, the solemn student deliberations were the real stuff of life the, um, meaning business um, meant to him rigorously and faithfully interpreting the party line laid down centrally so that centralism was something that he admired and something that later he would ensure was faithfully um, uh, sort of stamped into the Communist Party of Great Britain Um So, I'm quite keen to talk more about the Communist Party of Great Britain. Not because it was one of the Communist parties that particularly shaped the 20th century. Far from it. It was uh, a, a kind of a minor thorn in the side of the democratic left throughout the 20s, 30s. Um, Forties and and throughout the Cold War period and there are some kind of interesting contortions that happened during the Second World War but I think it's interesting to talk about because when there are institutions, political parties uh, in the democratic world which are sympathetic towards parties or have kind of uh, an alma mater kind of party in a country like the Soviet Union where that commits all sorts of crimes against its population uh, the ability to to justify this to accept it to see this as see the the kind of the violent as the progressive to be blind to certain things to um accept, ameliorate or see the, the long-term benefit in, in, in other things is kind of darkly fascinating uh, and it shows how far it shows the power really of ideology uh, as a kind of a secular religion giving people um, who have banked on an imagined utopia coming at some uh, undisclosed point in the future uh... the right to support very often the indefensible anyway thanks very much for this now just a quick note i'm keeping an eye now on examinations whether they are going ahead or not in the current coronavirus crisis if they are uh, i will do my very best on the patreon page to provide as many free resources to students as possible if you can afford to sponsor the page, then that's great and that helps people that can't, haven't got the income or the resources to find, say, private tuition in a time when um, schools are going to be closed um, to access some good quality material and hopefully it will help them in exams. If you can't afford to make a donation, please don't worry about it. Just let everybody else know that... Uh, should there be um, exams pending and nodes teachers to teach uh, A level GCSE history, that helps on the way uh, in some small capacity. Anyway, thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye bye.